I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Sally Poblete, who's founder and CEO of Wealthy, who joins us on the line. Sally, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Carl. It's great to be here. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to spell the name of your company. It's it's Wealthy. Am I saying that the way you say it? Yes. Okay, but it's got an unusual spelling. So well as in W E L L and then T H I E. So W E L L T H I E wealthy.com. Okay, Sally, give us the elevator pitch for Wealthy. Sure. Well, uh, Wealthy is a marketplace and sales optimization platform so that small businesses can find the best fit insurance for them um, across the United States uh, with the help of a licensed uh, insurance expert. And what kind of insurance? Uh, Great question. Uh, So it is the full uh, array of uh, benefits and voluntary, both medical, dental, vision, life, and other voluntary and uh, value-added products and services uh, for uh, an employee of a small business. Okay. And and, um, how do they currently do it? It's a great question, Carl. Uh, the process today for a business owner to find insurance is uh, quite uh, challenging. Um, they usually use, uh, 80% of them utilize the services of a broker because most small businesses don't have time, don't have the expertise, you know, aren't experts in insurance. And really, um, the process takes uh, quite a bit of, of um, uh, research and, and so forth. So brokers, on the other hand, um, typically have to go uh, get a quote from insurance carrier by carrier by carrier by carrier. So this process takes uh, days, if not weeks, to actually aggregate the information. Um, hours, certainly, um, and depending on the number of insurance products, insurance lines, it, it really can go upwards from there. Mostly manual, mostly um, putting things together in an Excel spreadsheet. So all of this is very, very labor-intensive for the broker. And then, you know, the business owner really doesn't have the benefit of a great consumer experience that, you know, you and I have when we're shopping for, for pretty much anything else um, under the sun. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> and what's the sweet spot in terms of the company size for yeah, you guys? Yeah, the sweet spot, yeah, would be under 50 employees. In certain states, it's uh, under 100 employees. Uh-huh. And that's really the small business, you can call it startups, but it's really the companies that are that size, that are the backbone of the U.S. economy. 95% of all businesses in the country are this size. They employ um, <clears throat> about 50 to 60 million people. So it's, uh, you know, your mom and pop shops and startups and accounting firms and dental offices and so forth all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. And you provide just that front-end part of the process, correct? So you don't then administer or facilitate administration of any of the benefits after it's been selected? Yeah, that's usually a whole host of, of uh, people in the ecosystem. That's uh, insurance brokers, that's insurance carriers um, who help uh, that business owner you know, navigate after the, the case is, uh, the insurance is, is purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, maintaining that and then renewing that year after year. Mm-hmm. And where does the uh, where 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 do you get paid in the process? What's the business model for for wealthy? Yeah, so we are a, a, a SaaS based marketplace in the sense. So three ways that we make money: 
um, the SaaS part is for licensing fees from both uh, the brokers as well as uh, carriers who, who uh, buy or license our platform in behalf of their sales force. Uh, we also generate transaction fees like any marketplace uh, where we are a network of buyers and sellers and intermediaries. So we uh, generate transaction fees from um, um, products uh, that are transacted on our platform. And then lastly, we also have uh, data analytics um, components because the, uh, one of the other exciting benefits of having an online uh, aggregated marketplace is that we do you know, collect data as a part of, of what we do in, uh, for the first time where it's brought together in one cohesive place, we're able to analyze that data and then uh, gain insights and help our users uh, ultimately make better decisions. So say a little bit more about brokers, and I guess uh, I'm a little confused. So I I own a a couple small businesses probably right in your sweet spot, and although I haven't personally shopped for the insurance, I'm pretty sure we use a broker to find Mm -hmm. it. And so is the model that my CFO would go directly to your website or is the model that our broker would use your website to sell to us? Yeah, so in either case, Carl, either your CFO or your broker would come to us. Um, I think the best analysis, uh, analogy I could could share is the way in which Zillow has um, really um, optimized or created a, a, a three-sided marketplace within in the real estate industry. Mm-hmm. So the buyers and sellers are coming together with the help of that real estate broker, that intermediary to help make the case, make make the sale, and help facilitate the transaction. Mm-hmm. So in this way, carriers. So we started first with carriers coming onto our platform, and we've aggregated insurance carriers, insurance products across the U.S. So. About 200 carriers, about 10,000 products you can find in our system. Mm-hmm. Next step is we're aggregating brokers. And why we're aggregating brokers is that they're, again, 80% of small businesses use a broker. They're licensed, they're great professionals, and they can help navigate the system. Then the third leg of the stool is really that business owner who, like your CFO, might want to say, you know what, I'm, I'm interested. This is a very big purchase for me. I'm likely going to spend $50,000 a year. I want to know what I'm buying. I want to make sure to do my research. So I want to start to shop and understand and browse. But at the end of but at the end of the process or before I make a final decision, I want to consult an expert and make sure I'm doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. you know, I didn't miss some important details. So that's where the broker comes in. Yeah, I so, see. And and in that situation, either the broker's going to bring the business owner to the the, the marketplace and say, hey come on in and take a look and start browsing and then I'm going to help you or the business owner can come directly and at the that end of the process they can raise their hand and say I need a broker to help me finalize my decision. Yeah. How 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 much variance is there in pricing in these plans? I I can imagine it's a nightmare to try to compare them, but I wonder what's at stake here. Is it primarily about getting the fit right or is it primarily about finding the best value? Uh it's uh, I think it's both, Carl. And so, uh, just uh, one thing I want to add is, before starting the company, I was uh, an executive at one of the largest insurance companies, uh, actually running uh, product development there. So, uh, at Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and um, so the um, variation in pricing for insurance products really varies greatly across geographies, and then across products um, within those geographies. And we've all uh, you know, heard the multiple 
um, acronyms, HMOs, PPOs, um, different benefits, different premiums. Um, and the premiums would change really by the age and the gender of, uh, sorry, not gender, age and other factors within um, your employee population. Um, so it can really vary widely in their healthcare needs and whether they, you know, have a lot of healthcare needs or they're young millennials or whatever the case may be. So um, all of that can can fluctuate um, in terms of pricing. You can get a plan for, you know, three hundred to four hundred dollars a month for an average, you know, twenty five or thirty year old in one market. But you know, in New York, that's like uh, six seven hundred dollars um, a month. Um, so, and that can vary by also by of course by carrier. Yeah. So the idea is um, finding the best fit products in carriers based on the type of business and what their needs and and, and budget uh, are. Um, and so we help do that and make that faster through our technology. Um, but then again, that lots of question and answers come come into play, and that's where the help of a licensed um, insurance broker comes in. All right. Well, Sally, you you referenced your long career at Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and maybe you can take us back to the beginning and give us the origin story for Wealthy. Sure. So I spent over uh, twenty years uh, in healthcare. Um, right after college, um, before uh, graduating, before business school, and then after my my wonderful uh, MBA uh, program at at Wharton, I go I've Wharton. Yes, that's yeah. our, our pitch for Wharton. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. and so I've been mix of startups, and then um, as I said, about eight years at Anthem, and then two years at another insurance company. And it's, it was always my lifelong dream to start a company, and you know that time came for me. After eight years at a big, big insurance company, and I really appreciated how, first of all, that I deeply enjoyed um, the industry itself, and think that that obviously insurance is a very important component of securing our um, everyone's um, health and financial uh, situation, and wanted to devote my energies towards um, helping um, transform. Uh, the experiences of people with the industry. There's obviously a lot of complexity, and I wanted to um, make things easier and simpler for people to navigate it and wanted to do that first in the purchasing process because that's really the first place, right, that the start of the engagement that a um, a consumer would have with insurance. So I left that uh, role and kind of uh, just decided to... Uh, you know, start fresh and jump right in and and uh, figure out from there um, what product, but but just decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur within this industry. Yeah. Sally, I want you to take you back to when you were deciding to, to set out on your own. And I, I think this is probably a situation that a huge fraction of our listeners are in. They're successful in their careers. They're working for an established company. They're making a good contribution. And they're looking, but they've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. That's the way you described it. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that process of recognizing an, an unmet need. And was it that you were hearing from customers a particular pain point? How is it you figured out what the what the need was that you were really going to go and try to address? Yeah. Um, so personally, Carl, uh, there were a bunch of things. There was a confluence of Right, the technological and consumerism movement that was happening outside of insurance mm. and, and outside of healthcare it was just 
all of the startups, all of the ways in which, you know, Amazon and and Apple and right, all of these great companies were transforming our experiences um, in everyday life. Um, that that in and of itself was was you know a big movement and, and driver for inspiration for for me. Then there was regulatory components and and um, uh, specific to healthcare, the Affordable Care Act, and lots of upheaval as a result of changing regulations in a obviously highly complex, highly regulated industry. Um, and so I think so. Technology, consumerism, and then and then regulations were all uh, forming a perfect perfect storm. Um, where I I thought, boy, you know, if all these things are changing all at the same time. There's got to be something in here, an, an entry point for me to to figure out how to best um, start up and and where I can can make an impact. Um, so that's. Um, you know, unique um, in my situation, but I think in across any industry, uh, well, I think one of the advantages of actually working in that industry is that um, executives in that industry uh, all, you already see every day the unmet needs of the incumbents um, because big corporations just, you know, for for whatever the reason, they, you know, they're big and you know, are slow to, to perhaps move. And so I think that's an advantage that, that we have or that professionals within an industry have because you already know firsthand where the pain points are. And then I think it's a matter of figuring out what's what, you know, for me, I was really passionate about it. And I can geek out about insurance, yeah. you know, all the time. And it's really fun. Um so then it was less about the opportunity, the gigantic opportunity in an industry, but that whether I could kind of do this day in, day out and still have a good time. And, and for me, that answer is yes. Okay. So so what did you do to to validate the opportunity? Um, did you just take a big swing at it and launch a site, or did you somehow do some validation or some testing to evolve the product concept? Uh, yeah, lots of validation, lots of testing. I think again, one of the advantages of having being a, one, uh, I guess, um, you know, starting mid-level in my career and having a network um, enabled me to call up my colleagues and say, "Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think?" Um, really starting with a blank piece of paper mm-hmm. uh, with powerpoints with wireframes. Showing them um, that that made a whole world of difference, rather than just explaining verbally what I you know, wanted to accomplish. And then they drove uh, their feedback, drove how we iterated from there until um, uh, you know wireframes to uh, minimum viable product to more iteration. So I'd say we've ad- maybe iterated, maybe to say a hundred times might might even be be um, an understatement. So wow. just constant, constant iteration of. Uh, who we target, how we evolved the experience, and all of that um, has really been um, a product of lots and lots of consumer input. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and to this day, right, it's it's the most enjoyable when we invite our customers uh, to meet with us and, and we watch them use our system and um, they go to places that... We didn't intend, and um, that's that's really eye-opening, humbling. Um, and as a product development uh, uh, person, um, sort of as, a, as with my functional expertise, it's it's still always very humbling to 
see them um, take our product in different ways that that we didn't expect and um, and continue to learn from them. Uh, tell us, talk to us a little bit about about fundraising and I guess the stitching it back into this topic, this previous topic, you described this iterative process of developing the concept, and at some point you you quit your job. Where in that process did you raise some capital, and what did you have to show to raise that capital? Um, so my my experience is a little bit, uh, I guess, unique in, this, in the way or that I bootstrapped. So uh, saved... Uh, as much as I could of my my salary for my corporate job, um, and used um, my savings to hire developers to create a minimum viable product that we could show to potential customers. Mm-hmm. So zero external capital uh, up to that point until we got our first customer, and the first customer was a large insurance company, so they could pay us, and we were fortunate to get that customer. Um, to, to again, pay us so that we could hire more developers and, and continue to do what we were doing. I mean, it was only after that point that we then got some angel investors um, to get excited. And I, I also then say those angel investors were uh, part of, you know, cultivated after years and years of just networking and, and um, keeping in touch with mentors and so forth who introduced us to other people. Um, and it actually wasn't until uh, 2017, so uh, a couple of years uh, later that we raised, um, later from our seed round, that we raised our Series A. Yeah, so that's, let me just make sure I get this timeline. I, if I can believe Crunchbase, you're, you actually started in 2013, and then mm-hmm. it must have been 2015 that you had that angel uh, and then t- it wasn't until 2017 this year that you raised yeah. a series a series A. Um, now, would you? So the advantage of that approach is, uh, well, there's there's a couple advantages, I suppose. Um, one one is you don't have to put your effort and time into raising money, and that's a huge uh, challenge. And the other thing, of course, is conditional on actually being successful, you end up owning a lot more of the company at, at the end. Which were you really focused on? Was it really more, I don't want to go through the headache of trying to raise capital until I can prove that 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 this is real? Or um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it was more, we have to show a repeatable, um, uh, repeatable uh, product market fit mm-hmm. that um, before we go out and, and raise money. Um, that when we are, you know, ready to ramp up, that's the point at which it, for me, made sense to, to raise money. And you can call me old fashioned, but, but, um, I've, you know, been, um, conservative with, um, raising cash and I kind of don't really like the term, you know, uh, burn rate. For, yeah. <laughs> for yeah. No one likes that. that. Why are yeah. we burning money? <laughs> We're not here to burn money. We're here to make a business. Yeah. So, so we've basically taken our revenues. Um, again, very fortunate to have had early revenues from phenomenal, trusting, great corporate partners who then that funded our our um, continued growth and, and iteration. Um, and then when we got to this point of okay, we're in, and you know things take time, and in, in healthcare and insurance, and um, got got the product market fit right, then that was the point at which we um, went out and, and, and spent a lot of time 
so, so certainly that was a big investment of, of my time uh, raising money. Yeah. And, and how hard, when, once this year, by then, you, you've got a business and you have revenues, mm-hmm. you've got a model. And how, how big a project was it to raise the $5 million Series A or what, uh, whatever yeah. it was? Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, uh, you know, six months of time. Yeah. Um, it was almost full time for me. Uh, so certainly a time away from, from the business. Um, I think time-wise, but, but more phys- there's physical energy, yeah. there's the emotional, mental energy that's, uh, that was required. Um, and I'm just um, happy that, that not only is it over, but that I'm, I'm really pleased with the uh, investors that, that we got on the round, a mixture of, of traditional VCs, but VCs who are, very, uh, who are expert in our industry and then strategics as well. Yeah. So um, a, a very challenging topic these days and one that we at Wharton are looking at super carefully and 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 with a lot of introspection is uh, is gender bias in in investing I just looked at a number a startling statistic that only about six percent of, of venture capital is going to to female founders um, did you I mean you were a lot farther along you're an expert in the industry but did you sense a, a gender bias in that process or or do you think that's it's a, it's a challenge that's faced perhaps by less experienced female entrepreneurs? Um, so I'll say first that my, our investors, first investors were male investors, mm-hmm. and we also have some female investors uh, in the round. Um, and I would say the, the the experience that I had, I think, um, the, is I recently read that New York Times article yeah. about. Uh, VCs asking uh, men and women different questions. Yeah, um, yeah, that was only... that's work. Uh, just a shout out. That's work of my colleague Laura Huang, Wharton professor. So it's super Terrific. interesting. Yeah, and of course I didn't ever I didn't hear the the, the you know I only heard the questions right? I got asked. Um, right, and the questions I got asked were were very much about um, you know proof. Yeah, and what do you have to show for it? And and it it was so much about about that and why we why um what plans we had in place and and less so about why the the sort of boldness or or immensity of of the business opportunity that we had um i that was one thing that i i um certainly observed um with some of the the vcs and then i think there was i also noticed uh so when we were raising money you know my story wasn't to disrupt um, insurance brokers, right? Um, and I think the what has a lot more sex appeal is to say, "Hey, I, you know, this is an old, bureaucratic, tired industry. Let me just right use technology to get rid of all of these um, dinosaurs, and that's how we make our business." Um, that wasn't my pitch, and I think that there were a lot of VCs who immediately said. No, no, yeah. I, you know, that's not <laughs> uh, that's not attractive, and I think we're finding now, certainly within insurance and benefits, uh, some of the big notable, uh, uh, well-funded startups um, taking a kind of a, a U-turn and saying, "Oh, actually, there's merit in in working with the industry, uh, with the ecosystem that exists, and enabling them ra- rather than rather than completely disrupting them." Yeah. All right. Well, Sally, remarkably, we're out of time. It went so fast. But thanks so much for coming in and, and having this conversation. 
Thank you so much, Carl. Really appreciate being here. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.